Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create safety in a world without police and prisons. And we're back in season two. We're checking the methods, we're reviewing notes, and we're hopping in the lab of some of the most beautiful experiments and community around the world. And of course, we cannot do any experiment without our partner in decriminalization. We got Eva back with us from IC. What's up, Eva? Hey, guys. Nice to be back. Eva, it's uh, good to be back in the lab with you. Uh, who are we talking to today? Today, um, we're zooming into California, where I live, to talk to Ali Anderson of Feed Black Futures. Um, Feed Black Futures feeds Black mamas and caregivers impacted by the criminal legal system in counties across California by partnering with Black and Brown-owned farms and food suppliers in the state. The experiment started out as a crowdfunding campaign to feed 20 families for two weeks at the start of the pandemic and blossomed into Feed Black Futures. FBF works to create a world where Black people have access to high-quality, fresh produce and the means and skills to produce it. It was so cool to model the connections between a resilient, sovereign food system and the process of abolition. I think like that's a connection that we've alluded to or in our Friendly Fridge episode, kind of talked about on the recipient end, but to also understand what does it mean to produce food in a way that makes us less reliant on systems of harm. I think this is a really great conversation that, that illuminates the way those are inherently linked, but also the way Ali and the FBF team have worked to link those uh, in ways that have created new possibilities. And it was really a treat to see the interconnections of our movement. You know, this was the first time really meeting or getting to speak to Ali, but to see that we come from so many of the same homes and spaces and to learn about so many of the parallels and interconnections in our movement ecosystem uh, was really a joy for me personally. But something I also want to encourage listeners to do as you go through one of me episodes is recognize that although these projects are emergent and distinct to their local spaces, there also is a larger framework and a larger ecosystem that is informing all of this. So whenever you can see those connections or those parallels or see your work in the work of folks we're talking to, I think that's really important towards the overall project. You can find out more about Feed Black Futures at feedblackfutures.org. You can support their work and ensure that people affected by these systems of harm have access to the food that will enable them to live and thrive. All right. Y'all ready? Yeah, let's do it. Let's hop in the lab with Allie Anderson. Let's go. All right. We're back at it. We are hopping in the lab. We are going out west and are very, very excited to be talking to Allie Anderson with Feed Black Futures. What's up, Allie? How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. So you, oh we we did save the sound effect. Come we on. did, we what, did, we did. Hold on, two, hold on, hold on. We're, we're, we're rusty and raggedy. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Let me do that with 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 greater appeal. Okay. From the one and only <laughs> Fee Black Futures, we got Ali Edison here. Burr, 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 burr. Burr, burr, burr. There it is. All right, all right. Now we now that we feels, feel correct. That feels right. As we always do, we like to start our conversations with a two part question centered around time. And define time however you will. That could be this hour, this day, this week, this season, this lifetime. In this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Mm. It's a reciprocal thing, relationship, and I am I am treating 
the earth well and the earth is treating me well. So I do doula work and I'm excited to bring in support or facilitate another baby's journey earth side, another soul's journey earth side. So I feel like I get that energy back from from the earth and from the world. So doula work, farming work, I pour into it and to her, she pours into me. Beautiful. And this is pertinent information for listeners. <laughs> Today is actually a due date. <laughs> we are in the final hours. So even potentially in this conversation, we're, we're not counting on it. But at any moment now, you could go and be bringing life into this world. So it just, the stakes are higher. I just, everything <laughs> feels so much more charged. <laughs> for the record, we're not going to do it live on air. This is not that type of show, you know? No. <laughs> we will pause and reconvene if, if, if need be. <laughs> we, we have priorities. But uh, I, I love the way you linked and, and are already kind of speaking to the overlap of those those mm-hmm. two spheres of, of your life and your work and how they both pour into you. You know, we're here primarily in the context of, of, of Feedback Futures, and I'm excited to get into the specifics of that. So in that piece, in that sphere, we have the very clunky uh, science analogy that is at the centerpiece of this show. Um, as two people who did not do well in science class, We've been tenuously wrestling with it. And we're in a second season and we've gotten no better. We still, we did no research between seasons. Um, but we do know that experiments start with a hypothesis. So when, when we talk about feedback futures, before you began this work, what was the hypothesis that you had coming in? I tell you my hypothesis. I just thought I was going to feed about 20 folks throughout the summer. I, um, had worked alongside some organizers, Arissa Hall, Delaine Powerful, Betty McKay, incredible Black femmes doing work, getting people bailed out, primarily Black mamas. They they ran and stewarded a org called Black Mamas Bailout. I had worked alongside them for many years and was like, I have time and energy to give and I work on a farm. How about I get y'all's folks food? for the summer for a couple of weeks. That was in April, May of 2020. So my hypothesis was that I would do this for a summer, maybe into the fall if I was lucky. And the thing about this, the cyclical nature is that there's going to be another summer and another fall. If we're lucky, yeah. inshallah. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. I, 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 I would love to know that pivot point. I think like, in the, the the macro and micro, there are these moments of of, of opening, of pivoting, of of heightening, of intensifying. And so, you know, obviously, for example, the 2020 uprisings in the midst of pandemic was a pivot point for different modalities of radical resistance and movement building. What was that pivot point that opened it up to like, oh, there's so much more possibility and so much more that you obviously have to commit to this to this work. The pivot was financial. I put a fundraiser on GoFundMe for $10,000 and then $90,000 later, about two weeks later and $90,000 later, I was like, oh, I'm going to be doing this for some time. And it was initially just mutual aid, like getting money and then getting food out from this one brown undocumented run farm in Southern California getting food from those folks to folks that were being bailed out or primarily moms and caregivers who were supporting folks on the inside. 
and stewarding families and providing support to their communities also while caring for incarcerated loved ones or formerly incarcerated loved ones. So yeah, put out a fundraiser for $10,000 to feed about 20 folks for this summer. And um, $90,000 later, obviously a lot of us were on our phones, April, May, 2020, didn't think we could leave the house or a lot of us didn't leave the house. I still left the house. I was working on a farm, so it was okay. (laughs) Still needed food. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people had angst and energy and wanted to support. And um, this Canva Instagram flyer got uplifted by Adrian Mee Brown, folks at Soul Fire Farm, which is a Black and Indigenous-led farm out in New York um, that I had attended, I had I had been to and worked. Yeah, so it was, it got a lot of energy and momentum. And we started just with feeding folks. And then we were like, as Soul Fire taught us, in order to to free ourselves, we must feed ourselves. So supporting folks and growing their own food is, is critical to our mission too. So started getting folks food. We started expanding to other black and brown farmers in LA, South LA, parts of what's called the Inland Empire, which is like San Bernardino County, a suburb of LA. That's just a wild name for a place. Uh, it is. They were just yeah. <laughs> this, the Inland Empire. Yeah. Very imperial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that's actually, I think, a really interesting dynamic that I want to want to unpack of this notion of resources, right? Because it's this midpoint of ninety thousand dollars is a substantial amount of money for just to have, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but in the grand scheme of like the needs of communities, particularly impacted communities mm-hmm. uh, by, you know, carceral oppression and other forms of divestment, that, that's a drop in the bucket of like the work that's really needed. So there's this like in between of like abundance, but finite resource. So like this notion of finite abundance coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that this experience happened to a lot of people uh, in these pivot moments. So similarly, the organization that I'm a part of started in the Ferguson Uprising, wanted a thousand dollars, ended up with 10,000, right? That same like ninefold coming in it's like oh we got to do more than what we thought and now nine years later we're still you know we're still chugging um and so in that moment i'm curious the learnings you had whether it be in building partnership in creating roles out in even like something as bare bones as accounting or if it also changed the mission of the work so i'm just very interested in that like resource pivot moment and what folks can learn from that well it was terrifying to have that much money. And that's something that I was like, what is, what's coming up for me? Because abundance is great, but it's also new (laughs) financial abundance. That's new. We had put a GoFundMe fundraiser, but I also put linked Venmo and cash app because that's such an easier platform. And I had that $1.70,000 in my Venmo. And I was like, the feds are going to come to my door any day. And like to see a, an immense amount of resources for me, to your point, that's actually not that much in terms of how much the state has and how much the state owes its people. But um, it was it was frightening. It's a lot under your social security number. <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, so thank goodness I was connected to these other organizers. Again, I'll name them Marissa Hall, Delane Powerful, who had done so much in the bail space and are familiar with 
large amounts of money coming in and how to get that out. So we quickly got a fiscal sponsor. We had to do some changing of that too, but they were able to make sure everything was above board. And I had no idea how to run a mutual aid project that later became a nonprofit. Um, And it was a huge trial by fire, as I'm sure everyone uses analogies, building the plane while flying. I don't recommend it. (laughs) It doesn't make for the comfiest flight. (laughs) (laughs) Right, it doesn't. (laughs) Um, I recommend... You know, reading you know Dean Spade's book on mutual aid, and there's there are there are uh, resources. I didn't think about them until I was already well over my head. But um, Barnard Center for Research on Women did a really amazing webinar for all of us who were struggling with the accounting and the finance part of this, led by Dean Spade and some other folks. So shout out to them. But yeah, and also the fright that comes with having an abundance and knowing that that the feds will come for me (laughs) was was a whole thing. They didn't. (laughs) Thank goodness. Everything was above board. Everything still is above board. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just want to like pull something out of that. I'm just like, Mm -hmm. shout out to the the tribe. So one, what I'm hearing from your, your, your story is that we are of the same village because these these are people that we are connected to. So just for folks who want to learn more about some of the folks you name, Dean Spade was episode one of our Portal Project series. Um, and then we also had Delane Powerful who came to Chicago and organized heavily for the Treatment Not Trauma Ordinance and was part one of our Treatment Not Trauma uh, conversation. So both just powerful people. And I'm saying that not just to shout out other episodes people should go listen to. Um, but We're to, shameless. You know. <laughs> shameless in that. Uh, but I, I really want to pull out what you're naming is the fact that this wasn't random resources you had, right? That the work that you're doing and the community that you're building with is connected to this larger infrastructure that may not always have formal channels or formal names, but there is a, you know, a multi-space, multi-state, multi-national, international, but also local-based movement infrastructure that now helped you do the work that is so transformational in your community. And so just want to, like, for folks who are listening, know that there is this big tent that may not be legible or visible to everybody, but if you find these nodes or these little outposts, the resources that you can get of like, oh, now I know how to deal with all these money and get these feds off my back. So yeah, that that was yeah. just my takeaway. I don't have a, a question out of that, but just a loving hug of like, oh yeah, we we know the same people. We know the same people. <laughs> no, I came up with then you know yeah, I came up with Black Youth Project One Hundred. Right. Okay. That's what I thought. Those are my people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As as did I. Okay. I I thought you looked familiar. Okay. So boom. I, I want to talk about the then the language of feed black futures because mm. it is then a continuation from language I'm familiar with of fund black futures. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to compare or talk about the connection, but I just see that arc of you know 2015 to 2020. So yeah, the five year arc of going from you know policy platform to now actually being able to put food on table and just mm. as you reflect from your experience as an organizer and the language that you're evoking in this powerful project, what do you see in that arc? What do I see in that? Um, and thank you for naming BYP. And that's, this, I have the fun black feature sweatshirt two feet away from me, but, um, and I hit them up. I was like, how do you feel about this name? And as organizers in that time, 
shouldn't be responding to emails, spending time on emails. I never heard back. So it's like, <laughs> I trust in our black queer feminist universe that it's okay <laughs> to be using these names. Um, but you said, <laughs> um, so you were commenting on, on the arc. The connection between that work of fun black futures and, and the tra- yeah, kind of trajectory into feeding as a piece of that. Yeah. I so appreciate Black Youth Project, BYP 100, the call to action with all of our chants and names. And we wanted Feed Black Features to be the same. We didn't want it to be unclear about what we were doing. We toyed with like Feed Black Mamas and then thought about how many, you know, queer caregivers there are who might not identify as mamas. We thought Feed Black Caregivers, but we also want to think about our future and how growing food and stewarding land is so integral to that. So we wanted to be really clear about what we did and um, also wanted to capture the forward nature of this work of land stewardship. Yeah, I want to go a little bit into the framing of the work um, because I think, one, it's very akin as Damon was alluding to, like there are nodes of of this like direct food sovereignty work connecting producers and land workers to people who need access to to food in ways that operate outside the market. Like that's happening in a lot of places. But what, what I think is crystallizing about the work that y'all have built uh, is understanding not just like the intersection of our food system and incarceration, but also the like unique possibility of how addressing uh, food apartheid can be part of the project of abolition is mm-hmm. what I see from the outside. And so I'm wondering, how do you see that connections? Like what does the food sovereignty work make possible as we build toward a world without systems of uh, carceral punishment? Mm. To quote Miriam Kaba, and I, and I, and I can't even find this quote. So I'm sure maybe I saw her. I, I think I might've heard her say it and it hasn't been written down, but environmental work, is abolition. It's just true. And creating systems where we can keep ourselves safe and fed and provided with nourishment and healing is abolition. And Black folks have such a integral history in creating self-determined communities and thinking about how we have been able to feed ourselves for so long and how obviously our ancestors were captured and taken and enslaved to, and their knowledge used to build the food economy of the so-called United States. So I think food and land work is integral to a collective self, a Black self-recovery. And we have such a deep agrarian tradition. And I think a lot of that starts with healing and food and land work is so, is so healing. Part of what led me to this work was my pursuit of healing. I left doing organizing work in New York, doing doula work, working for the public health department. And I moved to the Caribbean. I moved to where my folks are from, my ancestors, and started farming every day. When I was displaced because of COVID, I I moved back to Southern California where I'm from 
And I was like, oh, other people got to get on this. Like, I figured it out, y'all. <laughs> like, we got to get our, we got to get our, our hands back in the soil because it was our knowledge that built the so-called economy, an important part of our sovereignty is knowing how to feed ourselves again so we can free ourselves. I want to guard against myself, right? Because I, I, I have this passion for going big and I want to come, come down into some of the, the mechanics a little bit and like the procedure of, you know, we, we have the farm and we know it ends up in these directly impacted communities that we are working to build deeper relationships with for healing, but also for liberatory power, right? So that is the frame. In between that, what are some of the procedures, processes, roles that emerged or that became necessary that then taught you more, whether it's about organizing, whether it's about the mission statements themselves or about what it really takes in terms of the capacity to be able to meet our people's needs. Because I know there are a lot of people who have ideals and dreams of doing land liberated work and getting back to the roots and and getting into farm work and maybe don't understand all that it takes to do something as beautiful as getting a a cucumber to the doorstep of somebody who who can use it. For sure. So I started this work working on a farm, but as this work grew, we started working with individual Black and brown farmers all up the coast of California. So now most of my day consists of fundraising, <laughs> writing grants. The and- line to fundraising pipeline. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. it never fails. <laughs> <laughs> to getting um, money so we can pay Black food and land stewards who are doing this work. And then um, getting our folks who are interested in stewarding land into farmer training. So there's two farmer training programs, one in Southern California, one in Northern California that our folks are enrolled in. And then building gardens at people's homes who want to be able to get that hands-on land experience, but can't necessarily go to a community garden because they're caring for a million folks and doing a million things. Um, And then a political education piece. And I think that political education piece arose during the onset of this work because it's so important to tie the physical work to the greater politic of what is food and land sovereignty? Why is it important? Why is it important for Black people to do this work? So what arose was doing online work for folks who don't have land to steward or live in an apartment or what have you. And then also doing that, those touch points of when we do build gardens So we have educational components that go along with this. So my work has left the farm, so to speak. I still work at two Black women farms once a week, helping pack food and harvesting food. But my work has since transitioned to that of more computer-based, which is hard. (laughs) But um, sounds like y'all know it. (laughs) Yeah, I could see the the proverbial tear rolling down your head. (laughs) So one... Love to hear that you're still finding ways to get your hands in the soil. I know how regenerative, forget about regenerative ag in general, like just for a person that can Mm -hmm, be. mm -hmm. Um, And and I'm curious, you know, you're doing this work in relationship with all these farmers across California. And and I think that's an important piece of of understanding, you know, the the way that our food system works and, and understand. Like, I don't think that type of network couldn't exist in Illinois, 
because mm. of the racist practices of who can farm here. It, it, and I'm not saying that, of course, that's on the table in California, but in thinking about like part of the goals of the show is for not to, for people to be replicating, but if they were to try to build something similar in their space, mm. what mm-hmm. would that look like? And so it got me thinking, what would it mean to build this type of distribution network here? And, you know, we have, of course, urban farms and there's great work happening. And then there are a couple farms in Illinois, but because of the way that agriculture is controlled in in the Midwest, that wouldn't really be an option in the same way. And so I'm wondering, what have you learned about the way land, food production, the kind of mechanisms of that industry have limited projects like this? Or where have you seen that kind of butt up against the work that y'all have been trying to build? Yeah, there's a few ways to answer that question. I can think of um, a farm out in Fresno central California. There's a farmer by the name of Will Scott, who is black farmer, I think 82, 83 around there. And I think about the average age of a farmer being, I think around 65, 66. So he's even on the tail end of that. And this is public, but his, his children work in LA and in the, in the entertainment industry and don't want to necessarily take on farming. I think of the structures and the institutions that have made it so that farming can't be all that lucrative and has to rely on unpaid labor, undocumented labor, slave labor for production, especially in big ag. I also think about how, frankly, there aren't that many black farmers in California and that has so much to do with the history of land theft, eminent domain, land banking, redlining, grocery store redlining, all the systems we think about. It is hard to farm and it's not lucrative to make a living in in food and farming. You have to have so many hustles. What food sovereignty is all about is Black food sovereignty in particular is Black people being involved in what goes into their food how affordable it is, how accessible it is, and how culturally relevant it is, and how that's been robbed from Black people in in California, communities being pushed out. Like LA was at one point a a breadbasket, and how structural violence made it so they chopped it up with with freeways and figuring out, you know, large-scale warehouses and I'm thinking about in the in the Inland Empire in San Bernardino where where I'm from how one farm and a school was shut down for an Amazon factory and a Tesla factory yeah thinking about the structural violence that goes into black land loss in California and it's not specific to California but you know every place has their own racist laws and policies that have made it so that black people cannot be involved in the food system find myself being moved. I had a question that I was going to go to, but uh-huh. I'm really just taking in the way that you named that of one, the dependence upon slave labor and coercive and abusive migratory and other forms of extractive labor systems to produce the food and then connecting it to the land loss and these super villains and, and corporations headed up by Musk and Bezos continuing the trajectory of land theft and this also being in the space, you know, California in the last 40 years just had one of the biggest expansions of a prison system ever that there's been so much work to push back upon. And so, yeah, I just, 
<laughs> I just found myself, as you were naming that, not overwhelmed, but just feeling the weight of these systems that we are working to free ourselves from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I'll, I'll take that feeling to go back into celebrating the power and the potential energy that y'all are harnessing through the political political education and other relationship building. How are you seeing the investment into the bigger project, right? Because from each space, you know, you know, as a black farmer, it's like, you know, I just want to grow my food. I want to have sustainable income. I want to be able to have a better quality of life, which is admirable. For people who are receiving food, I'm trying to take care of my babies and, you know, my family. I'm trying to stay in connection with my people inside. And I just want to also maintain a quality of life with dignity. So that in itself is an accomplishment. But then there's the bigger connection of you are connecting those two positions for power building and transformation. How much do you see them seeing and feeling invested to that larger project that their well-being is tied up into? How are they seeing each other? How are they seeing each other? Uh, Something really beautiful has happened, especially here in Oakland. We've been building gardens for folks out in East Oakland, West Oakland, Fruitvale, which are historically more Black and Latine communities. Folks have been giving neighbors food and learning about what it takes to grow. And also there's some community building and healing work that has gone on that it's hard to even quantify. And and I have to for grant writing purposes, which is really hard, but I'm, (laughs) I'm thinking of one and I'm like, Oh, I should write the story down and then think of, uh, yeah. But, um, so seven to 10 new human relationship quantified, you know, (laughs) just like, (laughs) um, I'm thinking of, I'll call her Miss M we built a garden for her and I was in her backyard a few days ago supporting her with weeding. California just had a huge influx of rain and a storm and did a lot to land, especially in the, in the central Valley, but we were in her backyard and there was the super bloom, what you call it when there's a a rain and a lot of weeds pop up as you could imagine. And we were just um, pulling weeds and putting down mulch to suppress the weeds and her brother is inside. He had a stroke inside. He has been taken from facility to facility. He had a stroke. They thought it was an overdose. So they pumped him full of Narcan, which damaged his brain and health incredibly by not being able to address the stroke and then using Narcan. And he called her four times because you only get those 15 minute increments and hearing that the state was listening to the call. And um, she was out pulling weeds in the garden and she was just like, if it weren't for this garden, I wouldn't, it'd be really hard to, to do this. And he was on speaker the whole time. She was like, Allie's in the garden with us. But it was um, just hearing his pain, hearing her even still say God is good. And that faith that she has that, you know, how lucky am I? I get to be able to be outside with my hands while my brother is, is not. But it, She's his advocate. And I'm just like, at least I can take one thing off your plate, pun intended, which is getting food to y'all. And the, you know, five, six people that you have coming around every every day and folks you're feeding inside your home as well as community members. And then being able to step away from it as much as one can, as much as one has the privilege of, but um, Miss M doesn't have that privilege. So I think about, you know, people getting food, people getting gardens and 
reconnecting to the earth and themselves by being able to do this. And this is the house she grew up in. Her mom was a huge gardener, a huge grower. We planted in the same area that her mom, who's no longer with us, was planting in. And she was like, I was never interested in it. And then she passed. And now that's all I want to do and reconnect with her. So I don't know how much, if I even answer your question, but thinking about all the, the layers and how carcerality is built into the fabric of our communities and how facilitating the feeding and nourishment of folks is so healing, but also community building. I can see the dots kind of on the outside and I have no doubt that they can too. You know, as I was just hearing you share that story, I think something we didn't make a very pointed effort to name in season one that's real is in doing this work, the the the, the very real process of trauma absorption, right? Mm. And so you as, you know, obviously it's firsthand trauma for him and his body. And it, it means a lot for her as her brother and hearing that. But you also witnessed that, right? Like you also held her and like that doesn't just go away or that wasn't someone else's experience, right? Like you are interconnected with the people you are in relationship with. And so that's in your body as well. And then you got to go quarter day farms and then go write grants. And like, we just, you know, even in our interviews, we move past to then the next question or then the next learning. And I just want to like have humility and honor the humanity and show you love for, you know, you being there and being present and being able to bear witness to that story and document that of how these systems really do affect our bodies and our families and our lives. So I'll pass it from there, but I just wanted to acknowledge where we are. Thank you. No, I gave it right back to the earth. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. That was what I was going to ask is how, what does that look like for you that giving it back to the earth? It was a cycle. It was like this grief and pain and trauma, but she's this here. She's talking to her brother, you know, She's weeding, she's pulling. She's like, mm-hmm, yeah, let me, okay. I'll talk to that. I'll talk to that social worker. Yeah, mm-hmm, what he did was not right. And we both just gave it right back. What comes in must go out. And I do a lot of somatic work to make sure that happens. I, right before this call, was on a call with a somatic group out here called Generative Somatics. Shut up. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The nice you guys are basically, you're, you're basically <laughs> becoming best friends. Exactly, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so much farm room for activities. Are you yeah. my cousin? Wait, no, I'm just... <laughs> I was like, you should make it. <laughs> I'm not, unfortunately. I wish. Um, but yeah, we just gave it right back. We just gave it right back to the, to the earth and the earth as it is want to do. And we don't deserve her, but. Um, she held it for us. So as we move toward closing out one, thank you for, like Dame said, the the willingness, the vulnerability to share that moment. Um, first off, like what tools, roles, ingredients in this work have emerged that you were surprised became really important? Like what pieces of this did you not think would be as central to what the work has become? And then two, like what are just the tools in your toolbox or the framings that have been super important that like if someone was to try to build something similar where they are you would want to make sure that they received from you or like what do they need to know gosh get a delane get a delane powerful <laughs> <laughs> listen no, to that episode <laughs> they are an incredibly talented organizer um they're also jamaican so we 
have a tendency to have a lot of jobs. Um, so we are, tend to have a strong connection. So yeah. we, tend we have a lot of, to yeah, no. <laughs> we got our Google Docs and Google spreadsheets on lock. Um, no, get a delay. That's, so That's what I recommend. No, um, know what your strengths are. Mine are c- community building. I am a big picture person and I have had the, privilege and ability to be connected to people in the many walks of life. And I'm just like, I can't do this, but I know someone who can. So give generously when you have capacity, protect your energy when you don't, <laughs> but, um, and know that it will come back to you and the, and the right people will show up at the right time. That's not tangible though. And I, and I get what you're looking for. You're like, how can someone replicate this? No, but that's yeah. useful. That's useful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, befriend yeah. some Jamaicans and know your limits. <laughs> no. <laughs> Get some West Indians on your team. Um, <laughs> um, and also, I lean heavily into spirituality and developing a spiritual practice is, is something that I've done. I live in the East Bay. I was at a community last night for QT BIPOC folks breathing and being in community. I go to church. I was not really raised in the church, but there's this um, church that I have fellowship with Black elders in my community. Um, and there's a knitting circle <laughs> that I go to. And I just, I love the thought of um, sharing peace with people that I normally wouldn't meet and breaking bread with people that I normally wouldn't meet. And I just kind of take what serves me and leave, leave the rest, which I know is a huge privilege to not have religious trauma. I am outside as much as I can. I am taking a course on the Four Noble Truths right now with East Bay Meditation Center too. I practice with this group called Liberated Life brought to us by Rev. Angel Kyoto Williams, who wrote Radical Dharma. And we just sit for 30 minutes a day and just be quiet at 8 a.m. So I would say I lean heavily on spirituality and heavily on the logistical prowess of my Caribbean. <laughs> my Caribbean <laughs> Fantastic advice. No, that is good. Um, so I kind of, in that vein, want to encourage you to like continue to reflect and, and zoom out a little bit and, and reflect on your learnings of abolition. Right. And, and as we've kind of established, we, we, we are from a, a connected village or tribe. And so even placing myself in this, right. Like, 2013, 14, 15, 16, as we're starting to get this language and we're very passionate and I believe correct <laughs> still. Um, but but as I reflect, and I'll say this personally, I, I, I think a lot of our naming was responding and reacting. And a lot of our naming was abstract and ideal. And those abstractions and those ideals are things that I, again, still support and align. But in these years, you know, so many things we named wanting to be part of this project are happening. So we said we need more restorative justice work. More people have been practicing. We need to get back to the farms. We need to house people. We need to figure out new, you know, forms of mental health care. And those things are being seeded. And so... I want to move away from abstract to concrete as the analogy, because co- concrete is, is death. So it's abstract to grounded and to rooted. Now that you've been so rooted in the work, what would you teach your early abolitionist self 
about abolition and now that some of those things have become a little bit more rooted in practice? Mm, I love that question. And there's so many good puns. So early on in my BYP days, you know, I was at every meeting, at every action, leading actions. I got to co-lead the action that took down the J. Marion Sims statue in Central Park with Asha, the shop Mac, all, all these amazing, incredible people. Um, shout out. Just Asha. come hang out. All yeah, right. Shout out. Asha. Come over, hang out. <laughs> my literal best friend. Oh, no. oh, yeah. yeah, they were. So my, <laughs> yeah, they were. Um, they were on core when I was a fledgling. And then I, I think I took. Yes, I became membership co-chair and living free and centering joy is abolition work. And I would not have understood that early on in my organizing and creating spaces of joy and connection and practicing being a free black girl is abolition. And I'm early on would be like, no, we got to be out there. We got to be paying folks bail. We got to be on the front lines, which I have no doubt that I will return to still am in some ways, but I don't at all feel guilty for watching drag race on Fridays and <laughs> like chilling and being in community. I've also developed like a, a writing practice. There's a black queer writers community out here that I've just joined. And I think that I wouldn't have said that early on in my in my organizing and abolitionist practice, that I can create spaces for joy and be really intentional about that and be really intentional about rest and still see it as part of an abolitionist praxis because there are people who are not free and us not living free isn't going to you know, like they're not mutually exclusive. And that was something that I didn't understand early on. And I do now, which is what actually led me to Jamaica and what led me to, to farming. And, but just like a Jamaican, I couldn't just sit and farm. I had to start our organization. You had to get a bunch of jobs. <laughs> I, had do, I had to pay, do the work. <laughs> yeah. Do work. Consulting work. Yeah. 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 So, we we could kind of wind out into our last, you know, little formula questions. You, you've spoke to it, but I, I just want to frame it again in the in the, uh, the context of invitation. That's really what we've learned that the show is is inviting folks into the proverbial fire circle. And so, whether it's small invitations of like you can literally show up and sign up to do this here with Feed Black Futures or the, the the capital big we invitation into the work. Is there any invitations you have for somebody who's listened to this, who may not be ready to start their own project or mm. can't get all the toolkit, but just wants to step into the space? Yeah. So I guess if you're, if you're here in Oakland, you can come work with me on Wednesdays at Acton on Verba Farm, a Black woman ran farm out in East Oakland and pack produce and harvest. And if you're not... Gosh, I, we need so much like social media support and figuring out how to craft messaging. There's an abundance of projects and they all deserve money and funds and resources. But elevating our platform and working on that is something that I hate 
doing. I hate being on social media. <laughs> oh, <shame. laughs> so I will. Um, so I will invite anyone who loves it to come on through, um, which I don't imagine there are a lot of. Um, I think Gen Z folks are going to get irritated with our intergenerational ass. Like, you could make a reel and a TikTok for for our, our project. <laughs> we need some intergenerational support. Can you come help us make this film? Right. Intergenerational <laughs> friendships and is so important. Um, yeah, and I invite you to go to Soulfire. I know it's the the, the wait list is really long, and I I got in before. I think they popped off in many ways. Um, and, and I invite you to go to your farmer's market and find the black person selling food and go and purchase from them. And yeah, I invite you to think about where your food comes from. Harold's. No, I'm sorry. I'm grounded, Damon. Grounded. I'm sorry. A little farther back. No, 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 no. But yep, that's what you can do. Go to your farmer's market and find your black, brown, queer, femme farmer and buy from them as much as you can. Are there uh, ways that you would like you and the work of Feedback Futures to be found as well? Yeah, we're on everything at Feedback Futures. Not everything. We're not on Twitter. We're on on Instagram, Facebook. Um, Speaking of intergenerational. um, (laughs) (laughs) And um, yeah, you can type Feedback Futures into your browser your duck duck go um <laughs> we always try to get teenagers to run our tiktoks nobody's hitting up aunties to run people's facebook your, your auntie will get your, <laughs> your little you know, spread this message so god will bless you viral little joints we should where the black aunties to do You're facebook social media right. management that You're needs to be a whole new right. sector <laughs> yes right. because it's also an art form to make graphics that look that weird you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> like that's yeah. a skill too i don't know how to do that i don't know how to make something that fuzzy or that glitzy invitation to the lounge for the 67th birthday party i don't know how to do it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right I, I feel like we've done it but for the sake of format i'm gonna ask it but we enter with your hypothesis when you do an experiment there is often a conclusion So from this hypothesis of what getting connected to the land means from our freedom, as someone who's been doing that work, are there any, even if it's just temporary for this moment, are there any conclusions that you want to offer to this One Million Experiments audience? Nothing ends. You you put an orange in your compost, it can become soil. It can become something else. I hope Feedback Futures will not be around forever. I hope Black people will be able to steward land and grow food and start co-ops and continue to feed each other. There, A lot of this work has already been done, has been done for generations. But I don't plan on doing this forever. I don't want to. I'm very okay for this idea to compost and become something else. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. All yeah. your work should we should see it as future soil and like mm, yeah, we, sometimes we're yeah. so precious, we're so conservative about right. our little shrines or our little legacy projects and like it's all to fertilize, you know. Yeah. <laughs> fertilizer. I so appreciate the experiment framing of this cuz 
experiments lead to movements. I can't stress enough how important storytellers are at this present moment. So thank y'all. Thank you. Thank you for all the work that you do. Yeah. Big thanks to Allie Anderson for taking the time to chop it up with us and teach us all about feedback futures. And if you listen to the show, you know what time it is. It is time for the one and only peer review. Yeah, yeah. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. Let's uh, welcome our pal back into the convo. Eva, welcome back into the lab. What jumped out to you from this conversation? I mean, what feels so nutritious, <laughs> I just, I feel so fed <laughs> after this conversation is because it's, for me, talking about food and community, I mean, it's it's hand in hand. I remember, you know, early, early on as an organizer, one of my mentors just sitting me down and saying, you know, if you can't share a beer in community, like with people, like, what are you even doing? Like, what, <laughs> who are you organizing with? Like, where are you going? How are you going to get there? And, you know, I will extend that to include all of the tasty snacks and things that we're able to break bread over. But I think, you know, Ali talks about the pathways and the channels and the connectivity. And it's it's hard not to feel connected or want to be connected to that work since food is so much a part of our everyday lives. But I think also just, you know, it's how we build community, where I'm from at least. The centrality of food in life and then therefore organizing is so profound and i wonder are there other like essential needs that we can parallel the the dynamic of you know we told the story of her receiving and supporting the impacts of carcerality and you know folks struggling inside and the way she responded of just like putting it back in the soil and so like that double benefit of like what work can we find that literally feeds people or literally meets people's needs or or you know has an essential quality to it but also is inherently regenerative inherently healing i feel like we often are choosing between the two of like oh my healing work is over here and then i you know, I serve the people air quote over there and like, I need to make space and, you know, bifurcate the two. Uh, but what processes can we find that are creative, that are regenerative, that are so essential to people's lives? is like a lesson I'm trying to take with me. Yeah. I think the answer that often you hear is art making or creative work in that way. And there's so much similarity between that and growing food, like both the connection of creativity and process and like diligence and, and care and like the time that it takes yeah, I don't know. The people who I know who have their hand in the soil tend to be the ones who have an understanding of time in a way that's useful for all of us. You know, too, when you're talking about food and food systems and land, it's not something that we've we've delved into hugely. But hearing Ali talk about land sovereignty, hearing Ali talk about how black farmers were expelled from Los Angeles, how that land was taken over. I mean, I I'm really curious and it's something I'm interested in looking into more and researching, but, you know, there's such an interplay at the turn of the century and then, you know, in World War II with the Black and Japanese communities in Los Angeles and how, you know, little Tokyo in Los Angeles, where I spend a lot of time, 
is a place where Black community thrived during and after World War II. Santa Monica, where I live, is a place where Black community thrived when Douglas Aircraft was a huge employer for a large Black population and now is uh, predominantly Asian and still a lot of Japanese people in the space. And so, you know, I'm super interested in the histories of, of Black and Japanese farmers in this area. Actually, where I live, I'm surrounded by this used to all be nurseries. There's these p- cool pictures decades ago where all this land was just Mexican and Japanese farmers building nurseries for all the hill people. I'm interested to delve more into ideas of land and land sovereignty this season. I think, you know, it's something that that Ali gave us now to chew on. And she said something during the interview that I thought, you know, she was like, this is how it happened in, in California, but it happened where you are. So just like, you know, go to your, go to your farmer's market, find your black farmer and, you know, get, get hip to the history. But so I think that, you know, there's a lot of invitations in this episode to find out, you know, how food systems work where you are to make some of those connections, you know, as best you can, I think is a great invitation to leave with. And Eva, I'd like to invite you to make that podcast that you just described, which sounds really interesting. And I look forward to listening to it. That's like a, what a great project to take on. Um, Maybe when we're done with this one. All right. Yeah. I know who I'll call. (laughs) I just really, you know, want to shout out Feed Black Futures. And the lesson that Ali provided is again, that like the work builds on itself and the work leads to the work. And so for people who are hearing about these amazing projects and like, oh, I want to do something that powerful. The idea of participating over time, building up to that capacity is so valuable. So the the history of some of the direct actions participated in, the mama's bailouts on Mother's Day, right? Like, you know, being ready to respond when the pandemic hit. This is always the, the lesson. Like the folks who have been doing the work are then prepared to do the new work that is needed and are able to innovate and connect. And like, you can't skip those steps. For all the people that we are inviting in, the lesson that feels to continuously present itself to us is the work leads to the work. And so just like get off the sidelines and participate and support when and where you can. And that will teach you so much more than even listening to this podcast, but please listen to the next episode. (laughs) (laughs) One one amazing way to plug in that Ali mentioned is through the work of Soulfire Farm, which is a farm in upstate New York that does uh, black and brown farmer emergence. Some of it is for folks who have experienced farming. Some of it is for people who haven't put their hands in the soil before. Uh, They also have amazing resources, including a uh, land reparations map, which is a way for black and brown farmers to gain access to land. And of course, a lot more. And we'll put the link to Soulfire in the show notes. Um, But yeah, on a more immediate term, like what does getting active mean? It can mean joining a community garden, finding your hands in the soil, growing something on the back porch, sharing what you grow with a neighbor. That's like definitely an entry point. And as always, if y'all picked up on anything, hit us up. If any uh, seeds are germinating, you know, you know. Seed, anything starting yeah, to grow. I feel that. Something sprouting. <laughs> We're ready to get our hands dirty. Just give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> you can reach us at uh, Million Experiments. Get into with the work of interrupting criminalization. Eva, how can they do that? You can always find Million Experiments on Instagram at Million Experiments. You can also follow Interrupting Criminalization by going to interruptingcriminalization.com or on all the socials at Interrupt Crim. Make sure that you subscribe to One Million Experiments wherever you get your podcasts. You can find our other show, Ergo, at A-I-R-G-O on your podcast apps or at Ergo Radio on all socials. 
Dane, you look like you have something you want to say. Yeah, I did a little anti-plug a, a minute ago, so I'm going to balance that out with with a with a super plug. Um, something that we started to see from listeners is them organizing conversations and passing along these episodes to folks in their community. So feel free of if you are you know really chewing over or wrestling through some of these ideas start yourself a little listening group you can do some complimentary readings on the side and we are starting to get some really great feedback from folks that are taking a deeper dive in community and that is one of the the greatest ways to experiment and jump in the lab with us and you know we'll take the listens you know listen back absolutely <laughs> what the hell not, you know all right friends we'll be back in the lab with you next month with another wonderful experiment much love to the people peace <laughs>